Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 100? <laughs> 100! Episode 100. And what an episode it is. We didn't win all of our bets like I promised for the special 100th episode. We did go 4-2, and two, though, on our six picks last week against the spread. That's pretty good. 9-7 and seven on the year. But what a comeback for Jordan Love and the boys, the young Packers, the Brat Pack, down 17, looking listless at Lambeau Field. Get it together, score 18 unanswered, and have a come-from-behind win over the Saints in Week 3. Amazing. And just a character-building win for this team. We'll talk about all the injuries. We'll talk about the first three quarters, how bad they were, how great that fourth quarter was, riding the ups and downs with a lot of young players, Jordan Love included. But what a gritty, determined win and a gritty fourth quarter from that squad. Badgers win, too. They win by 21 on the road at Purdue. Kind of a flip of what we've seen from them so far this year. Bad first half, good second half for most of the first three games. On Friday at Purdue, really good first half and not a great second half. And some bad Ches Malusi injury news as well. Brewers were going banana land on Friday in Miami. 16 runs, a 12-run second inning. Then things cooled off. Tough loss on Saturday. Never really in it a whole lot on Sunday. The magic number was one coming out of Friday. It's still one. We're not worried. Six-game lead with six to go. We'll break that down too. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit to center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's intercepted, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. Before we get to any of that, though, before we get to Jordan Love and the Packers or the Badger win or the Brewers' magic number and trying to clinch the NL Central Division, we've got to talk about the biggest story, sports, pop culture-wise, of the entirety of the weekend, and that is Taylor Swift showing up at Arrowhead amidst rumors swirling that she and Travis Kelsey... Chiefs tight end have been dating maybe for a few weeks, maybe longer. It would appear longer given that she was in the box with Kelsey's mom. That feels like it would be a pretty fast moving two or three weeks if she's already hanging out with the family in the luxury box at Arrowhead. That took over all of Twitter. That was a weird amalgamation of pop culture Twitter and NFL Twitter. It's like two different friend groups meeting at the same place that actually had something to talk about. And she was celebrating the touchdown. She was dropping F-bombs in the luxury box. Are they together? Or is this just a fling? Will there be an album about this? I'm here to tell you. I'm here to tell you right now. We don't care. Oh. Let me tell you. Right. Let me tell you. <laughs> we don't care. All right. Well, I'm here. most people seem to care on Twitter. If you take the Twitter poll. And the best part about that was 
It was Taylor at a game where the Chiefs took on the Bears, and it became such a story because the game was a disaster. We're going to run through the NFL like we do every Monday coming up. It's the fact that Taylor had a front row seat to yet another abject failure, another laughable disaster from the Chicago Bears. After the week they had, one of the more bizarre weeks in sports, and then it leads into that, they were never in it in getting routed again. They might be the worst team in football. All right, let's talk about the Packers. This kid went viral probably three or four years ago. We might have blogged about him. This was at a high school game, post game, where he talks very enthusiastically in the post game about how they were down in the first half, but in the second half they yeah, got Yeah, they had us the first half. I'm not going to lie. They had us. We weren't defeated, but they had us. But it took guts. It took an attitude. That's all it takes. That's all it takes to be successful is an attitude. <laughs> they had us in the first half. It looked like it was just going to be one of those games, and I kept on mumbling that to myself once we got to the second quarter and the third quarter and the signs of life weren't there. You can ask my wife. I was just mumbling to myself, yeah, it's just one of those games. And she said, how are they doing? She made a Costco run during the game, came back. How's it going? I'm just saying, it's a young team. They're a young team, and they're doing young team things, and we have to understand that this is a part of it. When you watch a young team, it's a lot of youth, and you're going to have mistakes, and not everybody's going to be locked in. It just looked like one of those. They were bumbling and stumbling around for the first three quarters of that game. The defense actually came out and had a nice first drive where they shut down Derek Carr and the Saints. Kenny Clark shot the gap, got a sack. You love the tone they set, and Lambeau seemed to be raucous. People might have been in standing, too. There might have been people standing in that first half on that first drive, and there were people behind them not telling them to sit down. That's how jazzed up the crowd was for that game. They get the sack, quick three and out, get the ball back, and they're in Saints territory, feeling like this is going to be a good start to the game, and then that drive was a mess, that first offensive drive. You had the holding penalty, you had the false start penalty. Again, a makeshift offensive line with all the injuries. We'll talk more about the injuries coming up. You had the Royce Newman, Rasheed Walker, left side of the line, no Bakhtiari and no Jenkins, holding penalty, false start penalty. All of a sudden, it's first and 25. It ends up being a fourth and two Then they had that fourth and two play, the handoff to Emmanuel Wilson, who was then going to throw it back to Jordan Love across the field, who was then going to throw it downfield. The play was there. It looked awful. The actual execution of it was a hot mess. If you watch the play develop, though, I think they talked about it on the Fox telecast. I can't remember if they actually broke that play down. If you look at the All-22, it's there. Even as Love was slipping and falling around like a newborn baby deer, The guy was there. Was it Wicks? I think it was Dontavian Wicks. Wide open, but he couldn't get his footing and get a proper throw off to him, and he way airmailed it. You had Emmanuel Lewis short-arming it. Then Love had to pick it up. Then Love was falling over and threw it 10 miles over the head of Dontavian Wicks. That was a collective groan from the crowd and my living room as well. That set the tone for what would be the first three quarters. The play was there, though. Why you would trust your third string running back who was just on the practice squad to execute that play in that moment on a fourth down, that certainly could be called into question with Matt LaFleur's decision-making there. The play itself, though, the actual way it developed, it was there for a big gain, for a 25-30 yard gain, maybe more. Just really poor execution. And then the rest of the first half, not good. Most of the third quarter, not good. Saints got in front. The ghost of Jimmy Graham. Raise your hand if you knew that Jimmy Graham was still in the NFL. I had no idea that Jimmy Graham was still playing. And back in New Orleans, he gets that eight-yard touchdown pass. The Packers, of course, playing a soft zone on third down and goal at the eight-yard line. They had Rasul Douglas playing 10 yards off the ball on a 55-year-old tight end. 
who is six foot six though, and Derek Carr has made a living on those eight to ten yard passes. Just boop, dropped it right in the bucket. Seven nothing lead. I did have to laugh at the Jimmy Graham, the fake out Lambo leaper. It looked like he was going to jump in there, got his hands up on the wall, and said, "No, no, 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 not now." Seven nothing lead for the Saints, and then you had the big punt return in the second quarter. I don't know what it is about this Packers special teams. They have been better under Rich Basaccia. Overall, in general, the special teams have been better. They had nowhere to go but up after the 2021 season. They are still good for those blips, though. I don't know what would happen to the universe if the Packers special teams just played well for an entire year and didn't have any of these kind of mishaps. Maybe a black hole would form. Maybe it would be bad for the universe if the Packers had a consistently good special teams unit. And they focus so much energy, not just the money and bringing Basaccia in, but at his desire, they then brought in guys that are good special teams players. For many, many years, the Packers would draft for the talent at that position, and then those guys would have to play special teams because you needed guys to play special teams. Rich Basaccio, when he came in, said, we can't have that. We've got to have guys on this team, veteran players on this team, that are known commodities as gunners, as special teams players. And they went out and facilitated that. Brian Gutekunst did that. He gave him a handful of guys that are just special teamers that then you have to work into the actual offense or defense, not vice versa. And still, and still they give up returns like that. A 76-yard punt return for a touchdown. Saints eventually get a 17-0 lead heading into halftime, and the Packers look dead to rights, although down 17 for how poorly they played in the first half. I remember thinking at halftime, this could be a whole lot worse. This could be where you're down 24-28. This could be a Chicago Bears at Kansas City situation. To be down 17 actually felt kind of all right. A couple scores, you're right back in it, put some pressure on them. Then they come out on that opening drive of the third quarter, and instantly, A.J. Dillon is taken down for a five-yard loss. Another miserable day for him. Third quarter, you just continue to wallow around. Now, luckily, one guy did come to play in those first three quarters, and that guy's name was Rashawn Gary. Rashawn Gary only played 23 snaps. He is still on a pitch count snap-wise because he's coming back from the torn ACL. It felt like he was out there all game because every single time he was on the field, he had some kind of impact. He had three sacks and 23 snaps. He was living in the Saints' backfield. He had a sack. It must have been late second quarter, early third quarter. That knocked Derek Carr out of the game. If Derek Carr plays the entire game, maybe this plays out differently. I have no idea. Jameis Winston coming in. Even though Winston did get him down the field for what would have been the go-ahead field goal late. Winston coming into the game did feel like a turning point. And then finally in the fourth quarter, this Packer team woke up. 11 minutes left. Anders Carlson kicks the field goal. uh, 38-yarder to make it 17-3 to get him on the board. And that's what that felt like. It just kind of felt like that field goal. Earlier in the third quarter, they had a fourth down situation in field goal territory. They went for it, didn't get it. Then this next one, they kicked the field goal. It just kind of felt like, all right, you got points on the board. You're not going to get shut out. That's what I felt like coming out of that field goal. Then the defense gets a stop, and they start to apply more and more pressure to Jameis Winston and shutting down that Saints offense. Packers get the ball back. It ends up with a fourth and goal. Jordan Love with one of the all-time jukes. Just whoop. That was a Chris Berman. Whoop. Got a guy out of his cleats and was able to dive into the end zone for the touchdown. That made it 17-9, and then we got some new NFL math, everybody. Saw a lot of conversation about this on Twitter. We had people texting into the B93 Morning Show about this. This is new NFL math. I was actually thinking this in the moment because I've watched so many games, and because I'm a degenerate gambler, there's nobody paying closer attention to new NFL math or points the way I am, even though it's not helping my bottom line so far. 
This is the new thinking in the NFL. If you are down two touchdowns late or in the fourth quarter or 10 minutes to go or whatever, the thinking is, and the math does bear out that two-point conversion attempts, for the most part, year in, year out, are a 50-50 proposition. You are going to hit on them 50% of the time. For that reason, the thinking is when you score the touchdown down 14, you get yourself within eight, and then you go for two. If you don't get the two-point conversion the first time because the math says that 50% of the time you are able to convert, the thinking is, okay, we didn't get it the first time. Statistically, mathematically, we will get it the second time. Certainly, you could end up in situations where you don't get either of them. The math, though, says go for two in that spot. If you don't get it, you'll go for two on the next touchdown, and that will tie the game. If you do get it on the first one, you end up with the scenario the Packers found themselves in yesterday where – You can win the game if you score that next touchdown. An extra point puts you in front. They go for two. And Jordan Love, to me, he made a lot of great throws in the fourth quarter. I think this two-point conversion play might have been one of the best plays that we saw yesterday. One of the best throws where he had to scramble a bit to keep it alive. He had to throw across his body, and he threw a missile. He threw a dart to Samari Toure right between the 8 and the 3 to get the two-point conversion. And you're only down 17-11. The defense gets another stop. Packers make another move on that drive. Jordan Love had that 25-30 yard scramble on the sideline. Then he hit Jaden Reed about two plays later. That diving catch from Jaden Reed, who up until that point was having a tough day. I think we all like the direction this team is headed with the young wide receivers, and we like what we've seen from Jaden Reed so far. He has a little bit of the dropsies in his third career NFL game. That's fine. We saw that with a lot of great receivers. We saw Greg Jennings deal with that a little bit his rookie year. James Jones certainly dealt with that his first couple of years in the league. Devontae Adams, for his first three years in the league, struggled with drops to the point where a lot of Packer fans were done with Devontae Adams two years or two and a half years into his tenure in Green Bay. Reed had been dealing with that most of that day until that diving catch he made on the final driver. He was able to snare it, lay out, snare it, and secure it on his gut before it touched the ground at all to get the Packers inside the 20-yard line. That all leads up to three minutes to go. Jordan Love hits Romeo Dobbs. Good day for Dobbs. Five catches, 73 yards. And it was just a beautiful back shoulder. We've seen Jordan Love put one in the bucket a few times on that type of play. Actually, earlier in the game, too, another one of the Reed drops, the one where he had it on the ground in the end zone, but then the defensive back kicked it out of his mitts. He had one in Atlanta like that where he had a beautiful fade to Dontavian Wicks that Wicks could not bring in with a defender disrupting it, similar with Jaden Reed. And then this back shoulder to Romeo Dobbs, it looked like Aaron Rodgers to Jordy Nelson. It looked like Aaron Rodgers to Devontae Adams. One-on-one coverage, backup cornerback on Romeo Dobbs, let him fight for the ball, put it in a spot where he can get it. He did. They get the touchdown. Shout-out to Anders Carlson. I was thinking in that moment when it was 17-17, wouldn't this be the spot where Anders Carlson on the extra point after you gambled on the two-point conversion and converted, now you're in a spot where the extra point puts you in front. Wouldn't this be the time for the first Anders Carlson miss? And he nailed it. He has been money so far. He is going to miss kicks, I think. He was much maligned in training camp. He had podcasters all over the region, some you might be listening to right now, praying, demanding, begging, put some beg into it, begging Brian Gutekunst to call Mason Crosby, who is still out there and has not been signed, which I'm surprised about. That's how bad the training camp situation and preseason situation was for Carlson. He did come on that final week of camp. He had a good three, third preseason game, and he's just been money. He has not missed an extra point. He's three for three on field goals, and he hit that extra point 
That left time on the clock, though. The only thing that you didn't love about that drive was that the Saints were going to get the ball with a chance to kick a field goal, get in front, or potentially win the game. Remember last week when we talked after the, the Falcons game about how that game felt like a 2008 game, a game that they lost a close one where they had a lead in the fourth quarter, a two-score lead last Sunday, they fritter it away and end up losing in a heartbreaker. That happened a lot in 2008. Another thing that happened a lot in 2008 was a young offense driving to get in front the way Jordan Love and the offense did yesterday, but leaving time on the clock and then the defense unable to come up with a stop and giving that lead back with only five seconds left or 10 seconds left. That happened a lot in 2008 as well. We were talking a lot about that on last Monday's podcast. I thought, oh boy, could this be another 2008 Packers situation where Jordan Love drives them down the field, gets them in front. They overcome this 17-point deficit, and then Joe Barry's defense can't get a stop when they need to. And it looked like it was headed that way. Jameis had a couple of nice throws. Chris Olave, you see why a lot of Packer fans wanted Olave in a Packer jersey. Was that two drafts ago? He made clutch catches on that drive. They get it to a 46-yard field goal. Granted, the Packers would have had one timeout and a minute and 10 seconds left, and they only would have needed a field goal then to get the win. There was that in case this field goal went in. When they lined up for that field goal, though, I said out loud, can we just please, can we get a block? Is that crazy to ask for? When's the last time we blocked a kick? Can we get a block? Can we get a miss? And the Saints rookie kicker, Pushed it wide with a minute five left and only one timeout. Saints couldn't stop the clock enough. Jordan Love went out there. There's a really cool shot of him with the camera angle low that's going 360 around Jordan Love. And you see the crowd going nuts. And he's raising his hand. Let's go. Let's go. Loud Lambeau field in the fourth quarter at the end as that realization hit that they were getting in victory formation to take an 18-17 to win. What a comeback. 17 points down the fourth quarter. As I said off the top, that's a gritty win. There's certainly a ton that you can nitpick about this game. You didn't love in the first three quarters. The wide receivers had a ton of drops. Jaden Reed, as we just said, he led the way there. Jordan Love missed a bunch of throws, too. He had that throw down the seam for Luke Musgrave, which either would have been a 60-yard gain or a 75-yard touchdown if he catches it in stride and is able to split a defender there, which it looked like he was going to be able to do. That was a big miss for Jordan Love. Jordan Love missed throws, and he missed throws for the first three quarters. He was as culpable as anybody for how bad those first three quarters were. When the rubber met the road, though, and they needed to make plays, this young team came together and got it done. Yes, if you want to nitpick Jordan Love's throws, I saw more of that on Twitter, too. Well, he didn't make any plays until the fourth quarter. Look, he's going to miss throws, and his accuracy has to get better. He ends the day 22 of 44. Some of those are not his fault, obviously, with the drops we talked about. His completion percentage on the year is 52%, 53%. The standard for most quarterbacks, you want to be 60% or better. We saw Rodgers have some years mid to upper 60s, low 70s. I think Peyton Manning used to hover around 70%. You want him to be 60, 61, 62%, and he's not all that close to that right now through three games this year. 52, I want to say, or 51%. That's got to get better. His accuracy has to get better. His accuracy on deep balls has to get better. It's obvious he has the arm to get it wherever he wants to get it. The accuracy must improve. But anybody that came into this year thinking this was going to be some kind of finished product and a guy who, had, even though he's been on the team for three years, had only made two starts leading into this year. This is now, or yesterday was his fifth career start. If your expectation was that he was going to sling the rock and complete 68% of his passes and throw 35 touchdowns and six picks like he's Aaron Rodgers, I I don't know what to tell you. Your expectations were way too high. And if that's where they are, you are going to be disappointed no matter how this season plays out. The fact of the matter is, through three games, he has seven touchdowns. He did throw his first pick yesterday. 
Seven touchdowns, one pick, and a fourth-quarter comeback where he brought the team back from being down 17 points. He has been way more good than bad. If you want to go through the film and nitpick every one of those 45 or 44 passes he made yesterday and break down how he missed one outside or how he didn't hit the receiver there or wasn't perfectly in stride or he overthrew it, yeah, you can do that. You can. Just on the eye test, he has been way more good than bad, and this team got it together in that fourth quarter enough to escape with a one-point win. You will have to shout out the defense, too. I know Joe Barry much maligned. They give up 17 points, and one of those touchdowns with special teams. Packer defense only gives up 10 points on the day, and that's down Jair Alexander, who was a surprise addition to the injury report at the end of the week with a back injury. He didn't play your top corner. They got banged up throughout the game. The safety position's been iffy from the word go anyway. A lot of raw talent there, but unproven talent. And you're still trying to work things out on the defensive side of the ball. Yes, Derek Carr left the game and Jameis Winston was in and all that stuff. But 10 points. They only gave up 10 points. You are going to win a lot of games if the defense is only going to give up 10 points. They kept them in that game. They kept them within striking distance long enough for the offense to get it together and find their gear in the fourth quarter. As much as it may pain some people out there to give credit to Joe Barry, you've got to give him some credit to Joe Barry. Let's talk about the injuries. No Aaron Jones again, no Christian Watson, no Elton Jenkins. That was expected. No David Bakhtiari. He's just going to be a 50-50 guy most of the year, it sounds like. Keep that in mind, too. When we talk about this offense coming back and Jordan Love coming back, he did it without the left side of his offensive line and, again, without his top two playmakers in Christian Watson and Aaron Jones. And another bad day from A.J. Dillon. I don't know where you go with A.J. Dillon. He had a chance now for two games to seize control, I guess, of the backfield in those games. No one's ever going to go past Aaron Jones on the depth chart, but he had an opportunity with an extension looming in a contract year to put good numbers up to show that he can be the guy when he needs to be, and he fell flat with some poor running lanes in Atlanta and, again, couldn't get it going yesterday. Again, some of that was blocking, too, with a lot of backup offensive linemen out there. He just didn't have the gear. 11 carries, 33 yards. They actually got going when Patrick Taylor came in late third quarter, early fourth quarter. There was a noticeable uptick in the energy on that offense. Shout out, Pat. But Patrick Taylor didn't do a lot on the ground. He had three catches for 23 yards, though, and made a few plays there. That was noticeable. One of the reasons maybe they got things going late in that game. But no A.J. Dillon, no Watson, no Bakhtiari, no Elton Jenkins, no Jair Alexander, Whether or not any of those guys are going to play on Thursday, I do not know. The other bad news coming out of Sunday was Zach Tom, the stud young offensive lineman on a line now that has just been picked apart by injury. He left the game with a knee injury as well. Preliminary reports that I'm reading on Twitter are that it's not a serious injury. However, it is a short week, and any little ding like that, I don't think they're going to risk you this early in the year. You could be looking at going to Thursday with three backup offensive linemen, a mash unit out there against the Lions. We'll see what they do. There were some Packer fans optimistic, and I hope that they're right. Some Packer fans were saying, okay, they're going to hold them out of this game, but that means they're going to play them on Thursday. When you look at that kind of a short week where you play Sunday, Thursday, that optimistic part of the fan base was saying, I bet they only wanted to play them one of those two games because you play within four days of each other and the Lions game is more important. It's a division game. They're holding these guys out of Sunday's game so they can play them on Thursday. I hope and pray that you are right about that. I don't know if that's the way I would bet on it. If you made me bet on the direction this is going to go, I still think they give Bakhtiari, Jenkins maybe just can't play. I think they give Bakhtiari, Watson, and Jones this week too. I hope I'm wrong. 
The feeling that I get, though, and just based on how cautious the Packer medical staff has been in recent memory, if you give them this Thursday, and it's still so early in the year, if you give them this Thursday, then you get the mini bye week because you're playing Thursday. You kind of get a half a week off, and they wouldn't play again then until when they play the Raiders on the 7th, or is that Monday night? After Thursday, they don't play again until Monday night, the 9th in Las Vegas. It just feels like if the hamstrings aren't 100% for Watson or Jones, they're probably not going to force them out there on Thursday thinking, okay, we basically get a full extra week off and they'll be set to go then by week five. Again, I am hoping, like many are out there, that not playing on Sunday means we'll see Bakhtiari, we'll see Jones, we'll see Watson, hopefully Jair out there on Thursday for a big division game. I don't know. Just going on what this medical staff has done in the past, my gut tells me they'll probably all sit out on Thursday, too, and they'll be back for week five. It's a big game on Thursday. It is. We had the Vikings lose another close game. Boy, that script has flipped. A lot of people talked about that in the offseason, about how that Lions are the Vikings team that went 13-4 and last year and went 11-0 and in one-score games, that that was not sustainable, and we would see some regression to the mean there. Have we ever? <laughs> Through three weeks, three one-score games, they're 0-3. The Bears, of course, are 0-3. They may be on their way to another three-win season. And the Lions, the preseason favorites to win the division, get another win yesterday. They are 2-1. Packers are 2-1. Winner on Thursday will be in sole possession by a game of first place in the NFC North. It's very early. An exciting game, though, and a lot on the line on Thursday. Hopefully those injuries will shake out well, and we'll see some of those guys come back on Thursday. Let's make a real quick run through the NFL just overall. You had the Browns defense. Holy moly. Shut down the Titans 27-3. That team looks legit. Deshaun Watson had that one clip go viral where he kind of got lost on the field, spun around, and threw it behind himself by 10 to 15 yards. People were laughing about that. He had a good game, though. 27 of 33, two touchdowns, no picks. That's about as close to Titans or Texans to Sean Watson as we have seen. And that Browns defense looks like the real deal. Lions do get that win against the Falcons 20-6 as they get to 2-1. and one. How about that Dolphins score? You gotta do a double take. 70 points. If you played anybody in fantasy football this week that had Raheem Mostert, that had Tua, that had a Shane, is that how you say it? The rookie tailback, who I had on the bench. I drafted him late in a keeper league because of the Mike McDaniel offense, having some faith there and not really knowing who the lead back was going to be in Miami and all the injuries running back sustained. I drafted him late. He was on my bench. I think he scored 60 points on the bench. Or Tyreek Hill had a big game, too. 70 points. The record was 72, and they had a chance. They had 70 points with eight minutes left in the game. They probably could have scored 80. They had the ball in field goal range. Mike McDaniel was asked about that post game and said he didn't feel like that was a part of something they needed to do on Sunday to set the record, the modern record, which would have been 73 points with that field goal. They went 70-20. to 20. Things not good. Bronco country, let's ride. 0-3 with Sean Payton. Not Russell Wilson's fault yesterday. Chargers, as we said, get that one score win in Minnesota, 28-24. Ugly Patriots-Jets slop fest. Patriots won that. We covered there. That was one of our gambling wins, 15-10. Bills over the Commanders. They've righted the ship after a rough week one in New York, 37-3. Surprise game. Texans over the Jaguars. Remember, I was t- I was debating a futures bet. Oh, the Titans look bad on Sunday, too. I was debating a futures bet on the Titans to win the AFC South at plus 350 or plus 360. 
because I just don't have faith in the Jaguars being able to sustain two years in a row. Texans beat their brakes off in Jacksonville, 37-17. This one probably ruined a lot of parlays and a lot of teasers. Colts beat the Ravens in Baltimore. Ravens were eight-point favorites with a backup quarterback, Gardner Minshew, and that felt like the lock of the day with the Ravens at home, and the Colts win in overtime, 22-19. Seahawks over the Panthers. Panthers had A.J. Dalton in that game, or Andy Dalton, with Bryce Young, the rookie quarterback, out. Dalton put up some numbers, and Thielen put up some numbers with Dalton in a quarterback. Dalton threw for 361 and two touchdowns. Still, Seahawks win. They covered. That was another gambling win for us, 37-27. The Taylor Swift game, Chiefs over the Bears, 41-10. Bears scored 10 points in garbage time. They got routed from the word go. They've got to start over, guys. It's amazing. I don't know that I'm going to say anything disparaging about Bears fans. Mental health is something we take seriously here at Strange Brew International HQ. It's in the spotlight now for the last few years and being more aware and cognizant of mental health. For that reason, I don't find any need to kick the Bears any further than they are. They are down bad. If you're on Bears Twitter, they've got to start over. That whole week for them was nuts. Their defensive coordinator, there were a million rumors about why he resigned. He said for his own health and his family's health. There were rumors of FBI raids at Hallis Hall and rumors of FBI raids at his house, the defensive coordinator's house. He does end up resigning midweek, and then on Sunday news broke that there was an HR violation of some kind there, and that is why he resigned. That's not good. During the week, you had Justin Fields calling out the coaching staff and saying he needs to get back to being himself, and he felt like the coaches were putting too much information in his brain. Then he had to come back and correct that later in the week. They lost their left tackle for the year. That was all before the game in Kansas City, and then they go and get their break speed off. they got to start all over. They've got to fire Matt Eberflus. He's a nothing head coach. Maybe he's a good DC somewhere. That's why they hired him, because it seemed like he had some stability and he would maybe bring a defensive mentality back to the Bears. It hasn't gone that way at all. I think they got to start over at the end of this year. They, I don't know if they're going to get rid of Pace, the GM. He's only been there for a year. They just hit the reset button 15 months ago with Justin Fields and a new head coach. They've got to start all over again. Fields isn't the guy. Eberflus isn't the head coach. Brutal. This was the surprise maybe of the late afternoon slate. The Cowboys with that defense, they go into Arizona. We had the Cowboys minus 12 and a half. That was one of our misses over the weekend. The Cardinals could be 3-0. and This was a team people thought were going to be tanking. They've had two losses late, and then they beat the Cowboys 28-16. to Surprising result there, and the Steelers beat the Raiders 23-18. Poor Devontae Adams. His interview at the end of that game, he had another fabulous game. It just doesn't matter. Devontae's so good. He scores points with Jimmy G. He scores points with Aaron Rodgers. He scores points with Brett Hundley. He always puts numbers up. That's how good he is, a Hall of Famer. He was frustrated at the end of that game on Monday night, basically saying, I don't have time to mess around. And then he corrected himself and said, it's not all about me, but I'm getting to a point in my career. How old is Devontae? 31 now? 30, 31 years old? It's got to be 30. He's getting to a point in his career where he probably wants to get that Super Bowl ring and he wants to be on teams that are winning. He doesn't want to waste his time getting banged up. Yeah, he's 30. He doesn't want to waste his time getting banged up on a four or five win team. Unfortunately, that's where I think he is. Trade deadline, anybody? Could we ship David Bakhtiari to Vegas and get Devontae back? Is that insane? 13 for a buck 72 and two touchdowns in another Raider loss. He did not seem happy. I want to know more about how that all played out. Maybe we never will. There were rumors that the Packers lowballed him, and then the rumors that he just wanted to go home and play for the team that he grew up rooting for. Then the rumors after that were that the Packers actually offered him more, but that's how badly he wanted to go to Vegas. There were so many different storylines there. I have to know more about what happened there. It just seems odd that a guy would go to a franchise like that in the tail end of his prime, and now he's going to waste away there. It's unfortunate because we all love Devontae. They lose 23-18. Two Monday night games. 
Eagles in Tampa. Eagles minus five. I kind of want to put a tickler on that. I'm not going to. I just I think the quick two week storyline of Baker and the Buccaneers that's going to go by the wayside tonight. Rams Bengals. We just don't know if Joe Burrow is going to play. The line would indicate he's not. Bengals are minus two. I've got to believe even with Stafford back in L.A. I've got to believe that if Burrow were playing and healthy, the Bengals at home would be minus six, minus five and a half, minus six, six and a half, somewhere in there. That line to me would indicate Burrow is not going to play. Two Monday nighters again this week, 615 Eagles and Bucks, 715 Rams and Bengals. Let's talk quick about the Badgers on Friday. They get the Big Ten opening win. It was a flip of what we've seen so far. First three games, very Christian. That's what we've been calling them. Bad first halves. Good second half. That happened in Buffalo. That happened against Washington State, even though they got themselves in such a hole they couldn't come back from it. That happened against Georgia Southern, where they were down 14-7 early third quarter. They ended up winning that game by 21 points. The reverse happened on Friday. They had an excellent first half. Tanner Mordecai was spreading the ball around. He had a couple of rushing touchdowns. They storm out to a 21-3 lead, kick a field goal early in the third quarter, 24-3. Then things sort of fell off. Defensively, they couldn't contain the run or the pass, really, for a couple of drives there. Purdue got it down to a 27-17 game entering the fourth quarter. Luckily, the Badgers get a field goal early in that quarter, and then Braylon Allen, a four-yard touchdown run. They get the two-point conversion with 335 left, and they win going away. It does feel like the first three games, again, granted this is a conference game, and it's against the reigning Big Ten West champions, even though they lost a lot from that team last year. For those reasons, this win is more important. I don't know that it played out a whole, a whole lot different than we've seen in the first three weeks. I don't know that Badger fans feel any better about where the team is at other than that they get another win. They're 3-1 and one and 1-0 and oh in conference. Still haven't seen them play a complete game. The bummer of the day was Ches Malusi. You just feel for that kid. He has come back from several major leg injuries. He looked to have a spring in his step. We just talked on Friday's podcast about how it looks like at least going into this weekend or going into Friday's game, it looks like his style of running and his style of body fit better into the Phil Longo offense than Braylon Allen. He was getting more looks than Braylon Allen. And he goes down again. Was it third quarter or fourth quarter? And it was gnarly. They showed one replay of it and then said, we're not showing this again. Looked to be a fractured ankle or a fractured fibula, whatever the official diagnosis was. His season's done again. He transferred from Clemson. He looked good in 2021. Then he got hurt out for the year. Then he came all the way back. 2022, looked good early, got hurt out for the year. Came back again. He's still only 22 years old. Came back again this year. Looked good early. Fractures his foot, fractures his ankle, his leg. And he's out for the year again. It's just, you got to feel for him. And you could read it on the players' faces, especially Braylon Allen walking off the field on Friday with the win. It was just weighing on him. You could see that. Allen had a nice game. 16 carries, a buck 16, a couple of touchdowns. I thought Tanner Mordecai actually played his best game, even though the stats aren't going to bear that out. His final stats were 17 of 27, 174 yards, no touchdowns, one pick. He had two touchdowns on the ground and 44 yards rushing. His command of the offense, spreading the ball around, and he again had a couple of drops, one of them from Chimeray DK, who had an okay game. And then he had another Skylar Bell, like in week one. He had another drop in the bucket to Skylar Bell that should have been a 60-yard touchdown that Bell again dropped. He got no help from his wide receivers. If those two guys reel those two passes in, Mordecai probably has a couple of touchdowns and 250-plus yards passing. It just appeared to me at least, and again, I have no expertise other than watching a million games, He just felt like he was in much better command of the offense. He does have a hell of an arm. You do have to say that. When you look back at the Badger quarterbacks in recent memory, 
He has got probably the best arm of any of them. He can unload it. He needs some help from his wide receivers. I thought a good progressive step forward, though, from Tanner Mordecai. That was one of those games where you looked at the box score at the end of it and you thought, blah, stats from Mordecai. Of the four games, though, that has been that was his best game. Defense was okay until that blip in the third quarter where they let that rushing attack get going for Purdue. At the end of the day, you obviously take it. It's a 21-point, three-touchdown road win against a team you lost to last year and against a team that won the Big Ten West last year. Hard to get too upset about that, even though, again, didn't play a complete game. Now they have a full week weekend off. They do not play again. This is their bye week. They do not play again until Saturday, October 7th at home against Rutgers. That Rutgers team ended up getting blown up by Michigan. They hung in that game, though, for the first half, and they were 3-0 going into that. I don't know if this game is going to be a cakewalk. I still stand by what we said on Friday. Even though they won and they covered two covers now, 2-2 two two against the spread. Remember on Friday I said they're just not in the trust tree in terms of gambling. I just don't know what to expect from them. I still feel that way. I still feel that way, and I'll probably feel that way going into the Rutgers game. If they have a better showing there, maybe before the Iowa game, we'll have a better read. I just, I still sort of feel the way I felt going into Purdue, even though I acknowledge it's a very nice road win against a Big Ten team. Gets you that first conference win for Luke Fickle. 3-1, and 1-0, and another win if you have the season win total at 8.5 or 9. You'll always take those. Let's end on Brewer Baseball. Wild, wild game on Friday. The 12-run second inning. Yelly came back over the weekend in Miami, and his performance over the weekend, despite the team losing the series, it would seem to corroborate what we have talked about in the past couple of weeks, that that back injury had been an issue well before it sidelined him for about a week. Because he was going so well. As we said, he batted or he hit 284 in May. He hit 320 in June. He hit 333 in the month of July. Hit for some power. Then all of a sudden, around mid August, it seemed like he wasn't making contact. A lot of swings and misses, a lot of ground balls, not elevating the ball he had been earlier in the year. Then he is sidelined with that back injury. They never put him on the IL, but he was out for about a week and a half. Based on the way he performed over the weekend, it would seem to indicate that back issue had been an issue longer than he had been sidelined for. He has a three-hit day on Friday with two home runs and a double, two-hit day on Saturday with a double, had one hit on Sunday as well. A very encouraging series, though, from Yelich overall. You get that 12-run outburst for Corbin Burns, who couldn't get a run when he was throwing a (laughs) no-hitter. Could not get a single run in a game where it looked like he was ready to throw a no-hitter in New York. Then all of a sudden, he gets 12 runs in one inning. I've never seen an inning like that. I know it's not the record. I think they had to go back to 1990 where they scored 13 runs in an inning. Maybe toward the tail end of the Yount, Molitor, Gantner era. They have done it before. I've just never seen an inning like that where every pitch the Marlins threw, it felt like it was going down the line for a double in the gap or out of the park. Crazy inning. Donaldson had a home run. He had a nice series over the weekend, too. They get the 16-1 to win, and the magic number goes to one. They toast Champagne because they clinched a playoff spot. Playoff spot magic number went to zero on Friday. Division magic number still sitting at one. They clinch a playoff spot. They're cheering Champagne, and Council got a little cocky in the postgame on Friday, which I liked. He was cheersing his team. And he said, this is the first of a couple. We're going to do it right again tomorrow night, saying we're going to win the game on Saturday and win the division on Saturday. Well, didn't quite go that way. They got down 4-1 on Saturday, but Carlos Santana, a milestone home run for him, a three-run shot from the right side of the plate. That is career home run number 300. That puts him on a list with 12 players, switch hitters all time, that have hit 300 career home runs. What a career he has put together. We've now seen him get his 1,000th career RBI and his 300th career home run in a Brewer jersey. 
He had two hits or three hits, I think, on Sunday, too. He had a good series as well. That tied the game. Yoel Piamps, though, unfortunately, a wild pitch allowed the Marlins to score a run late, and they win 5-4. to four. And then on Sunday, just never quite in it. A 6-1 to one loss where Peralta, who had been so good and was the pitcher of the month in August, it was Corbin in July, right? Freddie in August. And Woodruff looked like he might be in the running for pitcher of the month for September. He had an uneven start giving up four earned runs on Saturday. It looked, though, like he had a very legitimate shot at being pitcher of the month in September in the National League, and that would have given the Brewers Peralta in July, or Corbin in July, Peralta in August, and Woodruff in September. See if that changes now with the the outing that Woodruff had on Saturday. Peralta just didn't quite have it on Sunday, and you could tell that right from the beginning. Didn't have the velocity on the fastball until about the third inning. Left a lot of stuff over the middle. He has given up some home run balls as of late. He took the loss. He's 12-10. and Still ERA under four. Well over 200 strikeouts on the year. Just couldn't quite get it done. And the Cubs did capitalize on having the last place Rockies at Wrigley Field. They won all three of those games. It keeps that magic number at one. The lead is six games in the NL Central with six games to go. No way this falls off, right? Right? (laughs) There's no way. There's no way this ends up being a three-game lead heading into the final three games against the Cubs. It better not. It's not going to. The Brewers just wanted to clinch the the division at home. They just wanted to do it in front of their home crowd. Why do it in front of the tens of fans in Miami when you could clinch the division in front of a raucous crowd at AmFam Field and do it against the Cardinals? That's the better narrative. The Brewers, to their credit, are always looking out for the best storyline possible. And the storyline is way better if you do it at home and you do it against a hated rival like the St. Louis Cardinals on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday That's the last run. Six-game homestand, day off today. Cubs also had the day off today. And then three against St. Louis, three against the Cubs to wrap up the regular season. One win or a Cubs loss. And the Cubs go to Atlanta for three starting on Tuesday. you got to believe they're not going to sweep the Braves, I don't think, in Atlanta. Something will happen in the next day or so where they are going to get that NL Central wrapped up. And then they have some decisions to make. I'll tell you one guy who I would love to see them rest, and they've needed to probably get rest for a while, is Yoel Piamps. We mentioned the wild pitch on Saturday. That cost them the game. He's been good for giving up a run almost every time out. It feels like the last five or six appearances. We talked about this, I think, back in July. You'd have to go back in the podcast archives. For most of the year, it's been Pagaro in the seventh inning, Piamps in the eighth inning, and Williams in the ninth inning. And that had worked really well. More often than not, 90% of the time, 95% of the time through the first three or four months of the year. I do remember a podcast. It was either early to mid-July or maybe late July where I was going through a box score and you click on those guys' stats and I started to get concerned about the workload. Elvis Piguero had not pitched more than 20 innings in a Major League Baseball season before this year. He's up to almost 60 innings, so quadruple the workload, and now he's on the IL. And we're not sure if we're going to see Piguero for the rest of the year. You hope he comes back, but you don't have much season left. You've got the wild card round next week. He went on the IL three or four days ago. Got to be there for 10 days. Part of that, to me, has to be that he's throwing the baseball way more than he ever has. And Piamps, too. His career high in innings was 40. He is close to 70 on the year. You could see it trending in that direction. And if memory serves, on that podcast, I was sounding the alarm saying, everything's pretty good right now with that being your plan, 7th, 8th, and ninth innings. But I do worry about two younger guys who have not had that type of workload in high leverage, especially in high leverage situations, 
for the duration of an entire Major League Baseball season. And then at that time, I'm sure I said, hopefully October baseball, pennant winning baseball. You do worry about that. And I do think we are seeing some of the ripple effect of that with Piguero on the IL and Piamps kind of leaking oil right now. The good news is Hobie Milner has been about as locked down as you can get, an ERA sub two. And the way he throws with his arm angle, arm fatigue really shouldn't be an issue for him. And Abner Uribe, he's been so, so good. Always a level of concern with Uribe's control. And you start to think of some of those games in a playoff atmosphere where it's do or die and it's a one-run lead. If he can't find the zone for a couple of guys, I worry about that with a young pitcher with his type of velocity and his type of stuff. They've been so good, though, you've been able to kind of slot them in here and there in those situations. So it shouldn't be totally foreign to them if you need them this week or you need them in October baseball and wild card baseball and NLDS or NLCS baseball. It just worried about that workload for those two guys, Piguero and Piams. I think, unfortunately, we're seeing some of that come to be now in the final week of the year. Day off today, it'll be a 6.41st pitch on Tuesday. Wade Miley goes, Corbin goes Wednesday night, and then Thursday afternoon, Woodruff will be on the hill. There's at least one win in there. We'll be fine. Don't worry about it. We'll be fine. We'll get back after it on Friday. Now, hopefully, this is the first of a couple of victory days. We did a victory Monday on the B93 Morning Show today. We hope to have a victory Friday, one of those rare weeks where we can have double victory days. Hopefully that's the case, and the Packers are 3-1, and one, and they have the division lead on Friday. We'll be breaking down that game. We will look at where the Brewers are. If they are, if this isn't clinched by Friday's podcast, then I am going to get a little concerned. I believe we will be talking at minimum about an NL Central Championship on Friday, regardless of what happens in the Packer-Lions game. We'll break all that down then, then probably speculate a little bit about what those first-round matchups could be. There are some Brewers fans that will say, Losing to the Marlins on Saturday and Sunday, not the worst thing in the world because that keeps the Marlins within one game of the Cubs for that final wild card spot. And many Brewers fans in my life, myself included, would rather see Miami at Ampham Field next week than see the Cubs and all their loudmouth fans at Ampham Field next week. Maybe those two losses weren't a horrible thing. We'll break all that down on Friday. Have a happy, safe work week. We'll chat with you then.